Welcome to a new episode of Infinite Games, a show about the misfits, rebels, and idealists reshaping the way we work, live, and play. All told through in-depth conversations with founders and investors working at the edge of what's next. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with serial entrepreneur Marshall Haas to decode the lessons he's learned founding and scaling Need Want, Peel, and most recently, Shepard. After launching a collection of products from innovative smart bedding to wearable emoji masks under the name Need Want in 2013, Marshall doubled down on their most successful product. That happened to be insanely thin iPhone cases that they marketed under the name Peel, a business that nearly 10 years later still sells hundreds of thousands of cases a year. His most recent venture is Shepard, where he helps companies around the world hire the best emerging talent from the Philippines. In this episode, we cover the lessons Marshall learned from Need Want, including some insanely frustrating experiences manufacturing their smart betting and how he took those learnings and incorporated them into Peel. Marshall's process for taking something from a foggy idea to a profitable company. How he eliminates waste from unnecessary tools to things that don't even need to be done to simplify his companies. And why he landed on solve simple problems, build profitable businesses as his mantra. To learn more about Marshall, visit MarshallHaas.com. That's M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-H-A-A-S.com. And you can also find him on Twitter at Marshall, but this time with one L. So that's M-A-R-S-H-A-L. For links to everything that we cover, as well as our favorite lessons and takeaways from this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 65 for the full show notes. And now let's jump in with Marshall Haas, founder of Need, Want, Peel, and Shepherd. Marshall, I am really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for making time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm really excited about this. I followed you for a long time. I followed your journey from need want to all of the businesses that you have built. And you've just had an incredible journey. And so this fits into a vein of interviews that we do around serial entrepreneurs. So we're going to cover a lot of ground, <laughs> talk about the companies, talk a little about your process, some of the tools that you use. But just to start, maybe you could share a little bit of the background story leading up to need want, but share a little bit of like your origin story. What got you interested in business and into this mode of life? Yeah. So I'm 31 now. I think I got pretty interested when I was like 16, 17. Got a Apple laptop. And I think when I was 15, had never heard of this company. Start researching it. You learn about Steve Jobs, guys like that. My parents, they had regular jobs. Nobody in my family is a business owner or anything like that. So I didn't even know when I was a kid, like you could do something outside of a job. Fast forward when I was 17, I had a, an internship at an architecture firm. I used to want to be an architect. And it was this crazy firm that did like mansion, manor homes, like money is no object. Like this is the Wayne Manor type thing. Just insane. And that's like a story for another time. But while I was working there, you know, we'd have these clients that would come in. I never got to meet them, but I'm working on their projects. You know, it was like this grunt kid. And he started asking like, what do these people do? I'd learn like what something would cost. I'm just like, that's not in the vein of anything possible with, I think what you could make in any job, you know, even a doctor. It's like, oh, this guy owns a giant law firm. This guy owns a utility company. It's pattern matching. And I started to realize that everyone was this business owner. It was just kind of like an initial like, oh, there's this other thing you can do. Yeah, it just opened my eyes. And then I had the interest. And I think just from there was a lot of diving into books, reading a lot of different books trying to learn about business and marketing and sales and all that. But I mean, I would point to that experience as what opened my eyes to just what's possible in a way. 
Was there any books that you remember reading in those early days that you still think back on or reflect on or reread? <laughs> I wouldn't say I reread this one, but I feel like a lot of people, their first is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's right at that great timing of, again, opens your eyes like, hey, it doesn't have to be this certain way. I skimmed it the other day and I was like, okay, this is looking back, it feels really primitive information, but some of those books are like right time, right place. You're in the right way to receive it. I think the other one, which a lot of people point to as well, I was super early on and it opened my eyes to even more was the four hour work week. I think that came out when I was like 18. So like a year into getting interested in everything. And you're like, oh, all these business owners I was just describing are all super old school. They own like law firms and utility companies, all that. And I was like, oh, it's like, digital thing. You start learning about tech companies and possibility of running something remotely 10 years ago, all that kind of stuff. It just blew my mind back then. I think there's a lot of, I think that book, some flack for the name, but like there's some really good first principle stories for entrepreneurs in there around delegation and removing yourself and designing your machine, however you want it to look for yourself. So yeah, I would say for our work week, it was like a huge early one for me. These days, I love stuff from like Charlie Munger. He's just like a smart old man that you just would love to sit down and be your grandfather and pick his brain for hours on end. But luckily, there's a ton of books of all of his stuff. Was there something you felt like drew you in? You know, was it, it sounds like maybe it was this idea of autonomy, owning your own destiny. What was it at a meta level, do you think was like, okay, I think I need to pursue this or this is speaking to me? I think I've always been creative not necessarily in any specific, it's not like I'm a great drawing, you know, I was new drafting for architecture, but just like as a high level creative, always interested in ideas and the idea of making something, whether it's guys that would build a high performance car that they built in their garage themselves to learning about guys that build businesses, just the craft of having an idea for something and then seeing it through and being able to step back and like see something. That side is super cool to me. There's, of course, the monetary motivations with starting a business. Again, I sort of realized there's kind of this ceiling if you have a job and then this unlocked ceiling as far as income when you see these people that are near billionaires building these houses and you're like, oh, so of course that's there. But yeah, I think it's the creation side is what excites me with all of this. I'd love to jump in and talk about some of the businesses that you've built over the years. And if I'm getting the story correct, I think the first major one was Need Want. And there's a lot to uncover there. I don't want to give any away. So do you mind talking a little bit about the origin story and what you were experimenting with there and how that concluded? Yeah. So how I describe Need Want today versus what it was back then is different. So around 2012, I want to say, I think I was 22 at the time, I was in software, working on a startup that kind of ultimately was acquired and wasn't going great, but I think had a good landing. So I was in software, thought I wanted to do something in the software space. But over here, I've always had this entrepreneur ADD. It's like, oh, what's this physical product thing? I forget what even turned my attention to physical products. I think it was seeing some Kickstarter Back then, it was mostly like trying to fund an art project or whatever, but there started to be some physical products on Kickstarter and realizing, you know, these are like one or two person teams. Again, eyes opened, you don't have to be a massive Unilever or massive consumer packaged goods company to make something. So I started just like keeping a log of little annoyances I had in my life that could maybe be a physical product. 
And the first one that I settled on was the idea of making your bed and how it could be improved. So ultimately designed, if you break down what goes into making your bed, if you sleep with a top sheet is tucking in the top sheet or realigning you know, your blanket and your sheet. That's kind of the core of making your bed. And if you optimize that and cut the top sheet and duvet to be the same size, and then we added a snap system along the two sides every like 18 inches or so. They kind of were free flowing, but still stayed aligned in your sleep. So that was kind of the idea, prototyped it with the seamstress. I had planned to do a Kickstarter for it. And so this is all while I'm full-time in this other thing. It's like a side project. I think I originally was trying to get my mom and sister to just run with the idea and they didn't really take it. And I just was still super curious about doing a physical <laughs> product. Starts with one. The story goes, basically, I met my co-founder, John Wheatley, co-founder of Need Want, via Twitter. So he was this other software guy, way more successful in software. He had a startup that went through YC. There was a social network, raised a bunch of money. He like did the whole Silicon Valley thing. But he was like the only guy that I saw that was in software and also dabbling with physical products on the side. So John had just started Peel, which is a super thin iPhone case brand. And I was on the verge of getting ready to launch this Kickstarter, reached out, hit it off like right away, had a ton in common and pitched him on joining me to do the smart betting, that business and flew out. I was in Canada at that time for the last company and flew out to San Francisco to come hang out with John. Like first time we ever officially met in person, stayed with him for like a week. We were filming a Kickstarter video. And during that week, we had a list of ideas, all in physical products that we had come up with together. They kind of evolved, but it was like, man, there's a lot here. Maybe we should do a ton of stuff, do these all together and maybe slap a name on it and make it this studio in a way, or just like give a name to all these projects we do together. So that's where Needwant came in. So John had the domain needwant.com and thought that was perfect for something just kind of wide and broad. And it's like, hey, we've got this list of ideas. Let's start attacking them one by one. And yeah, that was kind of the genesis of the company. I remember, I think one of the products was also like an emoji mask. Yeah. Maybe one was pool floaties. It's like all of these comical fun. None of them were really, maybe the betting was the most serious purchase, but I just remember it felt like a really fun, interesting experiment to see what would take off and maybe what wouldn't. Yeah, we did. So, I mean, I could go through them real quick. There was smart betting, which eventually rebranded to primary goods. We kind of expanded more like home goods, you know, did a mattress and other stuff in that. Mod Notebooks was the second one that we had an idea for. And that was essentially a paper notebook, similar to like a moleskin quality, thick paper, all that. But in the back cover hidden in was a prepaid shipping label. So then when you finish your notes, you could put it in that envelope, ship it off, and it would go to a scanning center. And we would digitize all of your notes for you. And then we had this companion app that would sync with Evernote and Dropbox and all that. That was our one that like kind of bridged physical and digital. And then, yeah, Emoji Masks was like a really fast Halloween side project to everything that I had like a little viral hit for 30 days and then fizzled out. No pull floaties that I remember, but a lot of different stuff that we would throw against the wall. And then we eventually acquired Peel from John, it made sense, used company resources and grow that one. But yeah, it was this startup studio in a way, but not trying to raise a ton of money for everything. For a long time, everything was 
run by the same core team. I had always three or four different brands going at one point and it was a lot of fun. It's like scratching our entrepreneur ADD itch at scale. And that's what it was back then anyway. I wanted to bring that up in part because I feel like that's the dream of every entrepreneur is you have all of these ideas and you really have to fight this urge to ship them all. Or sometimes you wanted to ship them all and I guess see what happens. And so I'm curious, you know, when you reflect back on that, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned? I mean, and they could be things like, hey, you can see a great blip of traction. Doesn't mean it's going to be there 30 days later in the case of emoji masks. But I'm just curious when you think back, what are the lessons that shine through? Yeah. I mean, to that one, I think it's like pattern recognition looking back. So a lot of the lessons learned was one of the big ones is just, we know the margins and all these different businesses that we've done and the pattern of the ones that have done really well and grown and have become real businesses. One had good gross margins. That was the problem with the betting company is we didn't have the best margins on that one. So it was really tough on cash flow and every dollar that you bring in, half of it is going to reorder. Just keep a baseline revenue. Forget if you want to grow and step up to the next level of revenue. And then, yeah, attacking problems that are going to be around. I mean, we knew emoji masks. We had the right expectations going into it. That it was just going to be this side project. It's not like a problem. It's a novelty thing that it's just for fun. What are problems that are going to be lasting? That's been the theme. The peel is our biggest one that came out of that era. And people still want a cell phone case that protects that isn't hideous. That was kind of the genesis was just like a case that doesn't make your sexy new iPhone look disgusting. Like the opposite at the time is like OtterBox. You get this amazing new iPhone and you slap this like thick piece of plastic on it. It looks nothing like what Apple intended and people still care about aesthetic today. Long term, I think about that business and wonder what the iPhone is going to look like in 10 years. It's probably going to be in your ear and not need a case, but whatever, we'll cross our bridge when we get there. You have a lot of years left, I think, on that one. For sure. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, I typically will buy the Apple cases. It's like once a year, I maybe take the case off for whatever reason. And it's almost like you discover a new phone underneath the case where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so thin. (laughs) You forget how beautiful it is because yeah, you just surround it in a case. So with Peel, that business has been going on now, what, 10 years, something like that? Eight or nine, maybe at nine, almost at nine. Yeah. I mean, it's been fascinating. I think obviously when you zoom out, I think businesses that create accessories in the Apple ecosystem. I mean, one, it's a huge market. So I'm not surprised you guys have been able to stay. What lessons have you learned over that time? Because obviously looking forward, you think maybe that business is smaller, or maybe it doesn't exist. So I guess I'd be curious, what has it been like running it? And we can dive into some more questions after. Anything that's novel or interesting that you've learned running that business? Because I've never had exposure to a business in the Apple ecosystem. So I'm guessing there's partly something interesting there, maybe something interesting about just like how persistent it is, this market for cases. Yeah. I mean, so a typical e-commerce business every year, Q4 from around Black Friday to Christmas, like that's everyone's busy season. People are buying gifts. That's why. Money's flowing. That's usually when you make your profits for the year for the most part. Like I know a lot of friends that like they're basically break even up until that point and then they crush it then. For Peel, we've got this great boost to that, which is the Apple keynote. Whenever that is, sometimes it's September, sometimes it's October. We cross our fingers that it's September every year because it it kicks off our busy season. So we get this extra one to two months busy season. 
we catch our breath about now. We're late October, get reorders going to prep for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and the Christmas rush. So yeah, running that business and being tied very much one-to-one of how well the iPhone does that year is kind of how the business works. And it's just fun from the inside. We try to match. So we have 10 colors for the iPhone 13, and we do try to match at least the most popular ones, like one-to-one, like a black case. There's black phone. If you buy that one, it looks just like your iPhone. We're going to come out with a Sierra blue color that'll match that. But looking at the sales data in the year, like you can tell, I don't think Apple releases that stuff, like what color does well, like all that. But we kind of just have that data, which is just fun. I'm an Apple fan. So I have that company still, and it's just cool to see what's popular in their product lineup and can kind of tell if the iPhone's doing well and well-received one year to the next before Apple releases those numbers. I feel like it's insider trading if I go buy their stock off of some of this information I have, but that part's been fun just as a Apple fan since the very beginning when I got my first laptop when I was a little kid. What are the good and bads of, you've had a few physical product businesses. You've had this one that's now been going eight or nine years. What have you learned, good and bad, about what it takes today to manufacture a physical product, get it built somewhere, have it here, be able to sell it, fulfill it, and all the challenges involved there? Yeah, luckily now we're kind of a well-oiled machine as far as the production. We have a few factories, but with our main factory, we have a rep in China, a third-party representative of our interests that will go to the factory and check up on quality control, things like that. But yeah, I mean, getting something up and going like that, we just had to navigate all those things. And there were some times where we took a leap of faith with like doing a production run. We've had some bad experiences with smart betting and the Kickstarter and having bad factories, but I've gone to China quite a few times. And the first time we went and we toured the factory, I'm just thinking we're going to go in, we're going to see how it's done. And then we're going to try to like renegotiate. Here I am thinking that our stuff is made. We work with them closely, but I don't have every detail of how the factory runs. It's a partner of ours. And going in, I'm just thinking they're just like pulling a lever on a machine. Everything's going to be automated down a conveyor belt. And I was really shocked to see how much is still done by hand, even at like a big scale. I mean, we're ordering, we do hundreds of thousands. It's still, yes, there's a machine that stamps out appeal case. After that, it's a lot of manual stuff. So, I mean, to give you a quick overview, it comes off the machine and it's two pieces coming together and there's a seam. Someone by hand with a sharp knife and they look like craftsman just like shaving off the excess plastic goes down a line they put it over a flame to get off any of the excess goes to another area one out of so many they test fit just to make sure that batch is like correct and there's no like weird issue i think they're brushed off of any of this excess plastic step one machine everything else is done by humans so kind of blew my mind i think as westerners we have this view of china and sometimes not in great light but I'm kind of the advocate. I tell everyone that'll listen to me that like, there's a bunch of craftsmen over in China. It's impressive. It's just plentiful. Everyone's like really great and more is done by hand than you'd actually think. 
It's fascinating. Has that just the experience of being involved in hardware businesses? The other businesses you have are, we're going to talk about Shepard in a second and of Haas, the one that you're in the process of booting up now. One of those obviously is in real estate, definitely has some physical things involved. The other is, I don't know, doesn't have too much physical in the nature of what you're producing. So I'm curious, this experience, has this shaped or set a bar for you in terms of to one, I'm just never going to do another physical goods business. Two, <laughs> if I do, it has to look like this or have this scale or have these margins. How do you think about what you would do differently or what would make that interesting in the future? Yeah, I do have some like rules I've set up if I were to do another e-commerce brand of like nice to have stuff. And then there's other check marks that are like, look, it's got to be this. Some of that falls in margins, which I touched on. And Shepherds is an agency, which I don't have an office or anything. It's all just services. I've gotten to see pros and cons with different types of businesses. There's certainly sexy as e-commerce has become. There's definitely a lot of negatives with it. If you screw something up, I know in software, you can change a line of code and fix for one or a billion users. And with a physical item, better not do that because they're in customer hands and that's kind of catastrophic. You can, of course, iterate on the next one. Just hopefully the mistake was nothing too big. I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. What was the first party question though? No, just any specifics. If I put myself in your shoes and I've had experience with digital businesses that are in software, which just look and feel very different. I mean, as an example, I have a friend also named Daniel who owns a business making accessories for dogs called Woof. And he's an incredible industrial designer. We have conversations all the time where he's just like, I can't believe that I made this decision to work in physical goods (laughs) because everything takes six months to nine months. It's just so slow. And so I I guess the question is just, has being involved in a physical goods business or businesses just either made it, this isn't a good business, I'm not going to do it, or just shaped a certain set of rules around what has to be true for you to be interested in the future? And mostly what I'm trying to get at there is for someone listening who's maybe thinking about, should I do this physical thing or something that's in software or digital, how would you encourage them to think through that decision? Yeah. So to answer the first part of that, I would do another business. It hasn't scared me away or anything you know, doing it for so long. Some of the things that I would encourage someone if they are interested in doing an e-commerce business, we already touched on some of this already, but you're going to do this as a business. It's not just like a side project, like the emoji mask thing. You can test product and everything, but you know if the problem you're going after is something that is going to be around or it's novel. Are you doing something that it's not a novelty? And that's just like a high level thing, but more specifically the margin stuff. I mean, I think that's the thing that people get trapped and messed up in. And it usually comes down to, they're just not charging enough for the product. They're like, oh, I've got this idea for a alarm clock of some sort, and it's going to cost me $25 and I'm going to sell it for 50. Please don't up your price or find a better. Usually the easiest thing is just price higher and then justify why you're pricing higher, not there's only so much leeway in manufacturing. I mean, you may get that down to 18 or something, but I mean, as far as like gross margin goes, someone even tweeted like a chart a while back, but it's like 50 to 60% is baseline. Like, okay, 70 to 80, great. You've got solid business. You should have good cash flow with that. The dials are aligned to make it work. And then if you're at like 90% gross margin, cool. You've got like a cash machine. And I think companies... Publicly, like a company like Gillette with razors, they're like a 90% gross margin business. That's like the goalpost of where you'd want to be. And you know, the reason for that is people, you know, start from like, oh, that's fair, charging double for something. 
sure, if it's just like you selling it to me here and now, but you know, as you grow, like you just don't know what you don't know until you get there. It's Facebook advertising costs, Google costs, however you're acquiring your customers. Maybe you're not doing direct and you're selling into retail, like that's their own calculation. Customer support, credit card processing fees, all the software involved running your business, people, customer support employees, fulfillment costs, just mistakes, margin of error. As far as I think in today's age, offering good customer support. Yeah. You got to answer your emails in a timely manner, but a lot of times it's just like eating it. You ship them the wrong item. Don't make them ship it back and fill the other one. And yeah, you're going to have a percentage of those that with out of a hundred orders, you may get three or four. It's all the above costs and then left over to have profit to do it again tomorrow. I could not stress enough healthy margins for someone getting into e-commerce. <laughs> no one else can see, but I can see by the look on your face. <laughs> yeah, That one hits yeah. home. It's also the benefit as well, too, of studying other businesses. I remember growing up, you have no idea what the input costs of something you buy on the shelf is. But then as you study that example you gave Gillette, I mean, sometimes you're just like, wow, it is absolutely incredible the amount of margin that's built into stuff every single day that you buy. But that's what it costs. And ultimately, at the end of the day, no consumer knows the input costs. <laughs> they don't know the markup. They just know what you're giving them and if they feel like it's valuable or not. Yeah. It's good advice. I thought it would be interesting to change paces when we talk about Shepard, walking people through the process of how you went from an idea or at least knowing a problem and having an, a rough idea of how you might solve that, marketing that business and scaling it. And I know the origin story was really interesting of having spent a bunch of time traveling meeting these incredible people, recruiting people for some of your businesses and thinking that that might be useful for other people. Would you share a little bit of the origin story of Shepard and even in the earliest incarnation of like what made you interested or think that there was something there? So for those that don't know, Shepard is a headhunter agency focused on overseas talent. And so right now specifically we're targeting the Philippines is where we source majority of our candidates for US companies. And that may expand to some other countries soon. But and so our model is we get paid when we place someone, a client's company, and that's the only time we get paid. So it's a great sales proposition for us. It makes an easy sale. You know, it's no risk upfront for someone that hires us. And then if we find them someone that they like and they do want to hire, that's when we apply our fee, which is essentially a percentage of their presumed first year salary, which is how our most headhunter agencies work. The genesis of that, I mean, rewinding 10 years, I won't go through 10 years worth, but just my very, very first business when I was in architecture and started dabbling, I would call it in business, I was offering architectural renderings services to other firms on the side. And it's like the sign out front of a new development of like what it's going to look like, whether it's a watercolor painting or it's a 3D rendering. I was offering that to other firms. And then I partnered with a agency actually in the Philippines and just so happened to be in the Philippines to do the work, you know, and I got the difference and that was kind of my first business, quite small, but it opened my eyes to like what things can cost overseas versus here and all of that. We hired some customer support people, our bookkeeper and became like a financial modeler. She's based in the Philippines. And then Jomer, who I started Shepherd with, he was working with us. He was kind of doing operations, a little bit of everything. He was kind of like the, I don't know if floater is even a, seen as a negative term, but he was kind of like a floater in the company. He would help a little here, a little there, a really good generalist inside the company. We just became friends, talking Slack every day, real funny, friendly guy. We'd talk every single day, just about everything. 
And so when my wife and I were traveling in 2019, we were kind of doing the nomad thing for a bit. You know, wanted to come hang out with him and Venice is our other employee there. So we went out to the Philippines and were there for 10 days and it's great. Finally got to meet these people I've been working with for years. Jomer, I know, has always had the itch to maybe start something at some point. And we were just hanging out as friends and he was pitching me on like different ideas he had. And one was, it wasn't so much Headhunter, it was more so you need a podcast editor or something. We would hire them and then just up the hours. So like we would still manage that person, but charge you double or whatever. That was kind of the genesis. And honestly, I would say from experience of running other businesses, we ran with that idea and tweaked it to be the model that it is today where we do the work up front and then we hand off that relationship. They join your team. It's great for both sides. We don't have to then manage that person. I know the problems that come with that. So we, Jomer and I decided to do that together, figured out what it would look like, a rough business model, maybe getting a little ahead before really figuring it out. I had a friend that was interested in possibly hiring a customer support team overseas. And they asked me some questions. And this conversation and this figuring out with Jomer, this is over the span of a couple of months. This isn't the week I was in the Philippines, right? I mean, to me, that's how ideas, they like noodle around and ruminate and modify them and stuff. But yeah, I had this friend and they wanted to hire a team overseas and basically told me I'd help them out. We did one hire for them, saw like how that would work for us. How much time would this take? Trying to figure out like, what could we charge for something like this? Basically just first customer test run thing, seeing what our costs and time would be like on it. And so we did that and then it was like, okay, I think this could work. Figured out a pricing model, built out the website as you see it today. Just kind of did a one pager. Supportshepherd.com is basically what we launched with. We've added a few more testimonials since we've launched, but the homepage was what it was. Same headline, same all that. And I just think when we launched, basically tweeted it out and then emailed a bunch of small business owner acquaintances and friends of mine, thought they could utilize it. And that was kind of the launch of the company. And I think the pitch has really resonated with a lot of people. It's hard to find great people, even in the States right now. Like I've got friends that need an in-person hire and they just can't find someone. So I think the stars align as far as the state of the world right now. And with remote work taking off, yeah, it's been really fun. It's for like 18 to 20 months into the thing, but it's growing like a weed. It's been really awesome. I'm excited about that one. It's been incredible to see that scale. And just for anyone listening, just to share, when I was the CEO of Flow, we hired onto our support team from Shepard and just had an incredible experience. And some of the things I think that I learned is, I feel like with the push to decentralization, the goal there in my mind is that talent is now global and you shouldn't have any preconceptions around, I don't know, hiring someone in this country versus that country. And you're truly just looking for someone incredible. And you have those base criteria. But I think even today, there's currency arbitrage. You may get your revenue in US dollars. You may pay out expenses in Canadian dollars or something else that already exists. And this feels like another interesting opportunity to one, just truly hire the best people and then be able to to compete around the world to find the best talent for the best price. Is that how you think about it? And when someone comes to you and is like, help me understand this, what's the pitch or the background that you share there? I think you nailed it. People are people, whether they're Filipino or Eastern European, wherever they are, Canadian, American, whatever, people are people. The talent's there. They're happy to work for you. 
And I think what a lot of people have found out once they've hired first hires outside of their home country is like, we can have the same water cooler conversations in Slack or whatever. Like a lot of times you're watching the same TV shows, you're seeing the same movies. We're in a global world now. And so I think that cultural hesitation quickly goes away. Sure, we got a ton of flack from people that just like thought we were, they took our jobs kind of stuff. And for those people, it's like, sure, totally say it. It's like, yeah, that's why people are hiring overseas. There's some arbitrage there. But there's also the side of like, you want to open yourself up to a world of talent, not who can you hire in your city. In tech, you know, we've all gotten comfortable with this idea of, well, of course, you're not going to just look in San Francisco. You're going to now look in the States. This is just the next state phase of that. You're going to look in Europe. You're going to look in Asia. You're going to look everywhere. And then for the talent side, I think the same exists for you as well. The ultimate luxury today is to have a remote position. Whether you're a business owner or you have a job is to have something that's remote. Opens up a world of possibilities. One of just like being with your kids outside the door of my office, not having an hour commute, all that. But it's the world of opportunity as well. It's like you can work for a tech company you look up to that's based in Silicon Valley and live in Boise, Idaho, or live in Asia or wherever it is. That's awesome to me. And I think not enough people talk about that side of it as well. I think everyone's like, oh, it's scary. You know, we're all going to get squeezed on salaries, but it's like, look, I mean, as much as the opportunity is there to play with the arbitrage side of salaries, it's to open up to a world of new opportunities for those that are job seekers. So that's my opinion anyway, on how this all works. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. I mean, it's very similar to how I feel. It makes me think back to early on in the conversation, you talked about four-hour work week and this notion of working on your machine, which is something for people listening that are familiar with Ray Dalio. In principles, he talks about a business as a machine. You want to look down on it. You want to approach it that way. I guess I'm curious you know, to explore that for a second and take something like Shepard you know, you have this initial phase where you're coming up with the idea, you're solidifying the idea, you launch it. Once you see that something sticks and you're like, okay, there's something here, what starts turning in your mind in terms of how to think about that and scale it or tighten it up? I mean, do you focus on discipline? Do you focus on process? Is it structure? What are some of the things you think about there? Yeah, I can give some recent examples of what I would categorize as like tweaking the machine, specifically with Shepard. It's the most fresh for me. So when we launch, like I mentioned, the pricing models, you don't really pay until the end. So easy sell, but also means you can get a ton of people who are like, yep, sounds great. Sign me up, start doing a ton of work. And then they're like, end up being tire kickers. So I had a lot of that initially. And the fix for that was charging a $500 project deposit. It's still fully refundable. It's just that skin in the game, get out your credit card, you're serious. Still the same sales pitch applies, just like, there's a little bit of friction where it's like, hey, weeded out the tire kickers. That solved a lot of time-consuming, zero-profit type customers or potential customers. And then it was like things around billing as well. Again, like, okay, we found someone great. They want to hire them. Basically, invoices due upon like the hiring. It's like, we want to commit to this person, whether they're starting next week, like invoices due. It's like every agency I'm sure runs into this. This is my first agency type that I've run into. And I've talked to others and like, oh yeah, billing is like the worst. You have someone full-time basically chasing people. And I realized, well, with that project deposit, we can automate it all via the contract signing. Well, now like a SaaS product that has a free trial that requires a credit card, 
we have a credit card on file and we just built it into the project contract that we're going to charge your card the amount. I mean, we'll send an email notifying it. But that change, again, was like a game changer for internal efficiency. So it's like little things like that, where it's like, you may have this thing you're running and you're like, oh, this part of the business is so annoying. Like, I hate it. You can problem solve. And a lot of times you can find solutions that remove the issue or make it faster, you know, or whatever. Like, I love that side of business. The day-to-day running of businesses, I think I'm decent at, but it's not like my favorite thing. I love like the parachute in, let's see a lay the land. Like this looks a little rusty over here. Maybe we could optimize that. It's my favorite part. That's kind of how I think about the quote unquote machine side of it. So last piece I'd love to explore is of Haas, which I know is this new concept you have. I think you're building two cabins in Texas, which is super fun and is really different than what you've done previously. What was the genesis there? Maybe it was some of that love of architecture was some of the genesis of that project. Yeah, that's one where I know that I could probably have a better return on investment somewhere else, most likely. But it's a good matrix for me and my wife, who's an interior designer, of pretty good return or what I expected a return plus interest. And it's going to be a benefit for us. I mean, we're going to use it part-time for ourselves, of course. Yeah. I mean, that business is basically, I started going to this area. It's actually in Oklahoma. I live in Texas, but there's this area about three hours away called Broken Bow. And growing up in Texas, I thought everything was flat here for the next like eight hours and found this area three years ago that has super tall pine trees you feel like, honestly, it, parts of it feels similar to like British Columbia, which is where you're based, right? No, Boulder, but very similar. Tons of trees everywhere. Yeah, tree town. Yeah, yeah. Which again, like to me, it was just mind blowing being three hours away from that. We would go up there often, started looking into cabins, what it costs to build one up there, what people can charge per night. And when we started seeing or paying, it's like, huh, like back in the napkin, I think this could actually be pretty good. About five years ago, bought the building that our office used to be in. It's like a boutique downtown building in St. Louis where we used to be based. And there's 14 residential units in there and uh, I think nine offices. And so we turned the 14 into boutique hotel, you know, we're on Airbnb, Verbo, all those. I saw what that business model looks like of doing the short-term rental thing at scale. So it's a little bit different for us where it's one big cabin, not consolidated, bunch of stuff on the same property or anything. But that's one where something later in my career where we have the capital to do something, it's a pet project. If I was like an investor in the business of Marshall Haas, you'd be like, hey, this is not the best ROI, but it's my business. So I get to do what I want there. So definitely a fun thing that I have this bad habit of turning hobbies into businesses, and that's exactly what happened there. (laughs) It isn't a bad thing. I mean, it seems like it takes advantage of your background, both in architecture as well as business. Obviously, you get to work on a project with your wife, which is an amazing opportunity. Where are you at with that now? Any idea of when that's expected to launch open? So we're on a construction on the first cabin, super slow with COVID and everything, just getting ground broken felt like a giant hurdle. And we're waiting for framing to start probably next week. So we're probably six months away from completion on the first one. 
back working in the physical world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all the limitations that come with it. Exactly. <laughs> especially with buildings. So I thought it would be fun to close out by just reflecting a little bit on something that you brought up earlier. I know you're a massive fan of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, but I know you have a sweet spot for Charlie Munger. What do you think you've taken away from that that has shaped how you think about business or has even shaped how you run your businesses? You know, you see guys like that and you think to run this massive, you know, create a billion dollars of value. Those guys are super wise. But what I've realized is there's core, really simple principles that are like, everyone already knows these things. Sell something for more than you make it for. Core principles still apply. And to just not overcomplicate things, I think it's like the biggest thing. Like one of my favorite things is is looking at a business and it's just like, look, these are all these things that you do that don't matter. You can test that like it doesn't matter. There's all this inefficiency in the smallest of businesses to the biggest ones. And there's just like, to me, that just points to, to make a dollar is fairly simple. We just add all this crap along and it has to look this way and all these different things. For me, it's just like back to basics. And as you go along, you know, we've added a lot of complexity to our businesses and it's good to like look at everything and what can we cut? What can we be more efficient on? The basics matter. I mean, also those guys like family life, everything outside of everything we've talked about, you want to be really well-rounded in those things. You want to exercise, you want to have a long life and be healthy and like you think clear and you can just be a better operator. All these things, eat your vegetables. The older I've gotten, the more I'm just kind of like, yeah, I mean, all the things that everyone's told you all along from the start are what matter. Being a good person, you come across sleazy people in business and nobody ever lasts. Sure, they probably got ahead for a couple of years, but eventually it caught up to them. I look at that through the lens of like, well, it's back to basics. Just be a good person and operate with some integrity and you can be around long enough to see some success for yourself. Yeah. I love it. And you're playing a long-term different game than short-term optimization. Yeah. Two last closing questions. One, if you could go back in time and whisper something in your ear, advice or words of wisdom, back when you were launching out on this journey to found need want and start then launching these businesses, is there anything you would go back and tell yourself or remind yourself? To be honest, I don't think I would change anything. My first part of it, if I could whisper myself, chill out, it'll all work out. Then I started thinking through, it's like, I think that early angst and anxiety I had of the chip on your shoulder, I think a lot of people have when they first start out, want to improve yourself, all that was good for the period of time that I was in and being paranoid of what's going to destroy our business. I think that was probably the right mindset for the place we were at in my career. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I was just frazzled. I don't think I would change that. I think certain things are appropriate for different times. And I put that in there. Looking back, I should have chilled out or I wish I was enjoyed it a little bit more, but I could argue both sides to it. And I think it was useful back then. I think that's a great advice. I think sometimes you need to go through those things to become a better version of yourself too. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. It's, it's all a journey. Well, last question for someone listening that's been thinking about launching a business for a while is back where you were when you first started your journey. Any advice you would give them? Yeah. I mean, obviously it depends on what they're trying to start. Not to repeat myself again, but I'm gonna repeat myself again, which is attack problems that you think are going to be around long enough. One thing I think that really helped me early on is the things that worked out were problems that I had, whether they were little annoyances, like John and I both hated 
ruining the aesthetic of your phone. We didn't have to do a focus group. We didn't have to like workshop anything. We just knew. You skipped all of that to figure that out. It was just innate. Go after things that are close to you. I think it's great to be part of growing markets and everything, but if you can find that and do something that you're close to, that you have your own problem and can solve for it, I think that's important. Yeah, I think it's great advice. Reminds me of something you said when we were getting ready to record, which is solve simple problems, build profitable businesses, <laughs> which I liked. For anyone that wants to find you online, follow you on Twitter, where can people go to find you and follow you? I'm probably most active on Twitter out of everything. So my handle is just Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L. Only one L on Twitter. My real name is spelled with two, but that's what I could get. So I took it. <laughs> and then you can find all of our businesses at needwant.com, just N-E-E-D-W-A-N-T.com. And then I do a bit of writing, blogging every few months or maybe once a year these days. But all that, I've probably got 30 plus blog posts on there now. It's just at my full name, marshallhaas.com. Yeah. And there's some great stuff there. Well, thank you so much for the time, Marshall. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome to chat with you. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to everything that we covered along with the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 65. For more from Marshall, listen to his 20-minute playbook interview in episode 66. There we dive into everything from Marshall's favorite habits, tools, and books to his favorite failure, all in less than 20 minutes. Finally, visit outlieracademy.com to explore more incredible interviews with the founders of Rally, Titan, Superhuman, and Primal Kitchen, as well as New York Times bestselling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. From our entire team at Outlier Academy, we hope you enjoyed the show. I hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.